German Marshall Fund podcast where we talk about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, and today we're back after a bit of a hiatus, um, and we're talking about challenges to the European order, specifically coming from some of the Eastern member states. Next year marks the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, which started a democratic transition process in the former Soviet states in Eastern, Central Eastern Europe. And this culminated with EU membership in 2004, so a resounding success, or so we thought. Because now among EU's numerous ongoing crises, we have pretty significant democratic backsliding in Eastern member states and conflict between Brussels and Warsaw and Budapest. And that's what we're going to talk about today with two of my colleagues. A brief housekeeping note, this is the first in an informal series we're going to do um, in the near future about European unity or disunity. Next, we're going to look at the Franco-German, much-famed motor of European integration and, yeah, discuss if it's going to get working anytime soon. But for today, back to Central Eastern Europe. And to talk about that, um, we have a two-part episode. First, I'm going to be joined by two colleagues, one from Brussels and one here in the D.C. studio with me. Corinna, how about you introduce yourself first? Hello, my name is Corinna Hurst. I'm Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the GMF Brussels office. And Jonathan. Hi, I'm Jonathan Katz. I'm a senior fellow in Washington, D.C. And then after that, uh, Jonathan Katz, he's going to have a conversation with three uh, senior former officials or um, foreign policy experts from the region who are who are deeply embedded in the politics of the region and um, are going to have a very interesting conversation about what's going on in the Visegrad states and uh, Eastern Europe. So as I said, we want to talk about what's going on in Europe right now and the challenges that Europe's facing. Let's start with, I guess, the news right? What's going on right now? And this would center around Article 7. This has been the big news about Europe and its Eastern member states recently. So Corinna, you're in Brussels. What is Article 7? Why does it matter? What can we expect? So in September, the European Parliament took the unprecedented step of triggering a disciplinary procedure against Hungary, what we commonly refer to as Article 7. And the European Parliament uh, based its sort of accusation on a report that had looked into Hungary and its serious violations of EU values, which included sort of independence of judiciary, freedom of expression, the rights of immigrants and refugees, corruption, and the rights of minorities, including Roma and Jews. But actually, the European Commission already triggered Article 7 proceedings against Poland last December. So we have actually two countries within the EU that um, have been implemented in this. And in Poland, it was primarily over concerns about the rule of law, and the European Parliament backed it. Um, under the so-called Article 7 procedures, um, what happens now is once the parliament has sort of triggered this, they sort of pass the baton over to the Council of the European Union, which is made up of the governments of the EU member states. And what happens sort of now, or sort of as a next step, is that first the ambassadors of these EU governments um, decide how to frame the debate, and then it goes to the foreign ministers of the EU member states who needed to sort of discuss if there was a clear risk of serious breach um, related to the democratic principles of the European Union. And if the members decide on that, um, they need to vote on this. Um, now, here is sort of the trick because it required a majority of at least four-fifths of the council members to vote on this. And if this would be happening, then uh, in the case of Hungary, it means the suspension of their rights to vote on council decisions. Now, probably this is not going to happen anytime soon, if at all. There are some people who say Article 7 is sort of a means to reestablish conditions for dialogue, that there are ways that diplomats and political leaders can sort of re-engage with these two, two countries and talk about ways to get out of this. Now, in light of the fact that we have European Union elections next year, um, there is not much hope for more happening. Um, 
and we can see it already in the case with uh, Poland that at the moment their case is still being discussed in the European Council and we now have September. Um, and yeah, so there are little expectation for more for now. Okay, thanks, Corinna, for, for that. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask you to sort of step back a bit with this. We, we started with the Newsy thing, which is this, this, you know, this action by the EU institutions to kind of challenge what's going on um, in Hungary and Poland specifically. But what's the broader picture? Yeah, I think uh, what Corinna pointed out was the EU growing increasingly concerned about uh, what would be democratic backsliding, uh, judicial backsliding um, in EU member states, uh, Poland and Hungary. And if you look, if you really sort of pull back from Europe um, over the last couple of years, what you've seen is increased democratic backsliding in several countries, several EU member states, and also their neighbors in Eastern Europe as well. Um, and an increase in authoritarianism, liberal democracies, um, uh, attacks on journalists, um, closing space for media, independent media, um, and a, a moving backwards on human rights. So for a region that had transitioned uh, greatly over the last almost 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall that were models of new democracies, what we've seen is a shift, a shift that has been based on sort of internal political uh, issues, some of it involving issues like migration, um, but also really more about a consolidation of power, uh, of Viktor Orban in Hungary or the current ruling party in Poland, really trying to consolidate their political power uh, based on nationalism, uh, based on appealing to uh, what some people would refer to as right-wing, right-wing extremism. And so some of the things that Corinna pointed out in terms of what the EU is concerned about, whether it be uh, treatment of minorities or treat or the sort of where the judicial uh, system exists within these countries um, is all playing out uh, across Europe, not just in these countries. So it's a, a Europe-wide challenge, and you know, a question for all of us, including across in Washington or in Europe, is how do we address these challenges? Um, how do we address the issues internally in these countries? Um, whether we work together with governments as the EU is trying to do or whether you support those groups that have long been concerned about it, which is civil society in these countries, or opposition parties within these countries that no longer have a level playing field to be able to address these challenges. They're being shut out. So you have closing spaces, uh, creeping authoritarianism in a liberal democracy, and very little leverage or tools to do something against this trend. You're saying that, I mean, if we say this this trend, this, you know, creeping illiberalism, we're seeing it in lots of places, in Europe, in the States. And, but this, you know, these actions that are being taken are targeted specifically at Hungary and Poland. Is the difference the closing spaces of civil society? Is it, is it particularly acute in, in these countries? Or why are Hungary and Poland being specifically targeted if this is a thing we're seeing across Europe? Well, one, it's, it's certainly acute in these two countries, and that's been recognized by, by the EU. Uh, the U.S. has weighed in and periodically at moments, too, to weigh in on judicial issues in Poland or a Holocaust-related law that people are concerned will restrict the ability for anyone in Poland to actually talk about the Holocaust or engage in an honest discussion. So Poland and Hungary are uh, the worst case examples right now in Europe. But what you're seeing is you, if you look at Austria, if you look at Italy, um, if you're looking at the other Visegrad four countries, you see some of these same issues popping up as well. And if you look at even internally in Germany as well, if you look at parties that are popping up on the right as well, or Le Pen, um, or if you look at uh, Nigel Farage in, in the UK, um, the Brexit vote, yeah, you see a problem. And uh, But Hungary and Poland have garnered the most attention because of the extreme uh, nature of where Viktor Orban has taken his country and what they're doing, uh, in addition to what's happening in Poland. The other factor in Hungary, too, is this close relationship between the Kremlin and Viktor Orban. 
and that also raises uh, a great deal of tension. And I think what it highlights is when you have countries that have weakened rule of law, that in, where corruption increases, uh, where there's no independent media, they could become very susceptible to outside forces um, playing in their politics. We'll probably pick up on that in a bit, but I wanted to go back another step sort of to, to get to the big question or, you know, the, where this fits into the, the bigger structural questions. Because as, as, you know, we mentioned earlier in the introduction and, and Jonathan mentioned it, we have next year, the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall. We're 14 years since these countries um, were officially accepted into the EU. So there was this kind of narrative between 1989 and then 2004 was the pinnacle of transition, right? These countries had made it. They were clearly not only on the right path, but presumably very far, um, very, very far along the right path, right? They were consolidated, democratic, European countries all moving forward with this European project. So, Krita, what, what happened were we were we just wrong in 2004? Were we right in 2004 and something happened between then and 2012? Um, what do you think happened? A lot happened. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe different things. I mean, I see a couple of trends. Um, for me, I have maybe a little bit of a more critical view on... Sort of the, the things in Central and Eastern Europe, because I felt, you know, these countries where when they uh, when the Berlin Fall fell um, and they turned toward the West, they looked towards the West as a model and imitated it. But there was sort of a sense of a moral high ground on part of the West, and Central and Eastern Europe had to sort of had the feeling, okay, we need to catch up with the West and you know emulate their standards. Um, but our standards in the West are not perfect. Um, and I think it has really become clear over the last few years that we are not holding ourselves accountable at times and following our own democratic principles and rules that we set up. Um, and so we need to have a fundamental look at how do we protect democracy that includes um, looking at our own countries here in the West. Um, as well as then sort of supporting um, what happened in Central and Eastern Europe or sort of have a new look as to how we can support um, the democratic uh, development on, on, on that side. Um, and at the moment, we also have a real challenge to the European project as a whole. Um, Europe is pulled in all sorts of directions, not, not only sort of the East and the West, but there's the North and the South. Um, we have rich and poor you know, there's a bigger gap there. There is a gap between cities and rural areas, a gap between women and men and various religious communities, um, the politicians and the citizens. So, the, you know, that tackles or addresses some of the things that also Jonathan mentioned. Um, and unfortunately, in Europe, you know, we focus a lot on the negative. There's the migration and the refugees, the Brexit, uh, enforced austerity that countries like Greece have to follow. And there's very reflection on the positive aspects, um, you know, why Europe or the European Union was uh, sort of established for the, in, in the first place. And, you know, what the Europe means, the open borders, consumer rights, data privacy, climate. And so, you know, I think we are at a point where we really need to rethink. So what does the European project look like? Um, and then, you know, Central and Eastern Europe has to maybe, and Jonathan, you might disagree with me, but um, I think there is uh, Central and Eastern European countries need to have another transition sort of almost that needs to take place where there is an internal organic process um, where they address these socioeconomic gaps that have developed over the few years because not everybody has really benefited from this move into a more democratic space and um, prosperity and, and peace. Um, not everybody in Central and Eastern Europe has felt it. Let me stop here for now. <laughs> And do you disagree with her? Now, 
No, I mean, I think uh, it's it's true. Not everybody has benefited from from this transition, but but clearly, if you look at where these countries were um, in in the '80s to where they are today, there's been a huge amount of progress economically, uh, politically, uh, where these countries are contributing globally to the transatlantic alliance. And so that's important. Um, and the other aspect too, is, which I do agree with, is a lot of what happens in these countries, Hungary and Poland, will be largely determined by the, by the public, by Poles, by Hungarians. Um, and they're going to determine the future of their, of, of their country. The, you know, the one area where I, I sort of disagree too is that, you know, the, and, and this is really is not a disagreement, but it may be an observation, is that the ruling parties that are coming in are not offering, uh, whether it's Viktor Orban, they're not necessarily offering a better future for the dispossessed who maybe have not done well you know, during these previous years. Um, in fact, in Hungary, it's about state capture. Some people call it a mafia. And so um, it's true that there's uh, people who are who certainly don't benefit from certain systems. We see that in the United States as well, and we can see the reaction to that, which is sometimes a populist reaction, asking for answers that are simple to very complex challenges. Um, I think that uh, it's really important that that Brussels also continues to play that role, working with these countries um, that. In my mind, and you know, they transitioned in the mid two thousands, but they were new democracies. They didn't have a history of 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 democracy um, or market oriented economies. And I think we were quick, particularly from the United States, and this will be my 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 tank, um, is that the U.S. left Central Europe once these countries became. EU member states and NATO member states. And what I mean is they left in terms of support for civil society, for democracy, the type of support that was pivotal as these countries were transitioning, including Hungary and Poland, to become EU member states. The U.S. was right there, along with the EU, at providing the type of support for civil society um, and support for rule of law. How do you how do you do the things that that make you a, a a democracy, but also a sustained democracy? And that's an area that we we definitely from the U.S. side we failed. And then once these countries became EU member states, it was much harder. And I think that you could see this in the EU struggling to figure out what do you do when you have countries within the EU that are not doing the right thing in terms of European and EU values on democracy and rule of law. What are the mechanisms to hold countries accountable um, and or to help them uh, continue their transition? Because democracy is not a, a one-year project, two-year, 10-year, 20-year. It's a, it's a, to me, it's, it's, it's more than a 200-year project. So investment in societies, investment in peoples, addressing issues like social cohesion, which is a challenge across Many of these countries, as well as the United States, where you see society and others pitted against each other, and I think we haven't done a good enough job, job collectively, both Brussels, Washington, to, uh, to try to address these challenges. And even with that said, we can't alone um, uh, push back against the tide of authoritarianism uh, without the, the leadership of those countries and those individuals who are being oppressed taking a so lead. So I think there – I mean there's – so I, I have kind of two comments um, on what you said. I mean, the first thing is this idea that the U.S. pulled out after um, the accession process was complete or almost complete. Uh, now, there are there are people in the U.S. who would say, well, that makes kind of sense because the EU should have taken over. And if the EU didn't take over, um, then it's 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 their problem. Um, I mean, it's also now our our problem, but it would have been a reasonable assumption that the EU should be taking care of its own area. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of people in this town who think that way. Um, but the the sort of broader question, I think, um, and 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 actually, I think part of that is just everybody assumed we had gotten there. The road was easy. It was a clear trajectory, right? And now we're seeing in all of our countries, not only these new democracies, but also the old democracies, 
the the debate wasn't as settled um, as we thought it was going to be. But secondly, I mean, you pointed to civil society, right? And it seems like um, Orban, for example, understands very well that this would be a mechanism to to reverse the illiberal trend to challenge his power and that's why he's he's you know focusing on shutting down civil society so jumping on that i want to sort of step to the the looking forward what's the what's the future for the order is civil society is that the answer um as you said europe doesn't you know obviously doesn't really know what to do with these countries it's trying now article 7 after a few years of not knowing what to do. So now it's trying a kind of minor sanction mechanism. Um, some countries in the West are trying to re-engage in civil society activities in these countries. Um, what else? I mean, what what can the future be to save the European project, to bring these countries back in? Um, any ideas? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't think the EU is, is necessarily doing enough internally to support uh, civil society and and partially because the EU doesn't fund civil society in EU member states. So that's, that's a challenge. And with the U.S. also not funding civil society uh, in Central Europe, then you have really the two – uh, two main actors, um, the EU and the U.S., that that don't fund these groups, and so that leaves a very small group of funders potentially to support civil society. That over the last decade has really has really shrunk and and has withered. Um, it doesn't have the strength that it did previously. Do I think civil society alone can can alter? Uh, the direction very difficult when you have a situation like a Viktor Orban cracking down on civil society. Uh, the stronger his power becomes, the less space there is for anybody else. He also, I'm sure, is aware too that it's very likely when you become a corrupt actor, um, it's very likely that if the balance of power swings, that you end up in jail. And so I think you know he's certainly concerned. So a couple things: the EU needs to look internally. Um, and, and think very hard about how it engages societies, uh, civil society, if you, that's what you want to call it, in these EU member states. It, doesn't, it can't be just in a one-year plan. It has to be a multi-year plan. The EU also needs support from the United States in this process, and that includes diplomatic support. Uh, of course, the, the United States is not deeply involved in Article 7 discussions. That's something internally you know, for the EU. But what you want to see is U.S. diplomats, the State Department, and others strongly backing up the concerns, which is the concerns about backsliding, the concerns about human rights, uh, judicial, the need to address uh, judicial shortcomings. And you don't have that right now. So uh, I found that, that when you have the U.S. and the EU uh, working together, Making, uh, making certain and clear what our concerns are and what we would like to see happen in these countries, it has a bigger impact. And that's not happening right now. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think the U.S. messaging, particularly from President Trump, is it's okay to do these things. Um, and we're not going to call you out on them. And we're certainly not going to go out there and put resources into uh, projects that might impact the very people have concerns about the treatment, their treatment under Viktor Orban. And uh, so I, I get the dilemma diplomatically because it's a sensitive moment to for the United States to deal with partners, NATO partners like Poland and Hungary on difficult issues. However, I will say it's a warning, you know, that left neglected, left unaddressed, you're going to have a NATO in 10 years, 15 years time that is filled with authoritarians filled with countries moving in the wrong direction as they are right now. It will be a weakened security for the transatlantic community and will be less able to deal with challenges from Russia to China. So it's short-sighted. So those are a couple of things that we could do, uh, at least from the U.S. side, which also means opening up the door to resources and funding of civil society. Okay. So, Corinna, you said earlier 
Article 7 is maybe just a step toward dialogue, and then we hope the dialogue leads somewhere. I mean, Jonathan just sketched out a scenario in, in 10 years where NATO's uh, not full of, but it's got a number of basically authoritarian powers in it. That means also the EU uh, is an institution in 10 years that's, you know, got a number of authoritarian powers. Seems hard to imagine that the EU exists as the EU if it's half full of anti-European, anti-EU authoritarian powers. So what's the other scenario? What's what's the scenario that works? Um, what What could that look like? Uh, now, I'm happy to address this. I want to make one comment about civil society. We've been focusing a lot on civil society in Central and Eastern Europe. I actually find when we look at civil society more on the Western uh, side of Europe, um, there's sort of the silver lining uh, to the rise of uh, extreme populism um, that has gotten people on the street that I think we shouldn't under, I mean, we shouldn't un, um, underestimate the impact that had ha, has had. And, you know, this could be anti-corruption demonstrations in Romania, pro-choice uh, demonstrations in Poland. So we see an increase in civil society engagement also on the West. And you have grassroots movement, like, you know, there is Volt now, which is, um, you know, sort of political, new political parties across Euro some European countries with a truly pan-European agenda. Um, or, you know, you have new initiatives to, you vote EU by European Citizens Action Service to, to help make citizens more informed decisions. So there's a lot of creativity and people taking, uh, you know, advantage of um, new technology or, or something like the Brussels Binder that tries to get women um, into the policy debates. And, and so there are new perspectives in, you know, as, as EU policies are being done. But I want to... Um, focus just a minute on, you know, we talk about civil society, but there's also the whole question about leadership. So, you know, who's going to drive this? And I I think we're at the point when we look to, you know, what's the perspective for the EU or Europe? Um, we need to move away from, or we need to have conversations about what this European project actually is. And so far, this has been about more or less Europe. It has been about federalism versus intergovernmentalism differentiated integration following the, uh, the UK departure. But it doesn't mean much to somebody outside. And, you know, none of this sort of look brings in new ideas. And but I, we are now at the point where it has become very, very clear that domestic politics really influence EU politics and also European foreign relations. So you cannot separate one and the other. And then you know, also whether it's Europeanization or globalization, um, public goods and public policies need to, they cannot just be managed by national states. So, but they have become transnational. So we really need to have a look on how traditional decision-making is being done and we need to infuse new ideas. And this is, I agree with Jonathan, sort of where civil society comes in because they have the opportunity to sort of cut across borders, so to speak. And I think sort of the Paris climate deal was sort of one example where, you know, U.S. government sort of stepped out, but then um, U.S. states stepped in and definitely European countries um, um, were, were out there and, and, and so, you know, have been able to sort of drive this this forward. And so I think we need to see more of that, um, really about new ways of vitalizing the quality of dem democracy in Europe. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll end on Corinna's somewhat optimistic vision for, for how this could turn out and go to our final segment, which is Think or Tank. Um, and Corinna, I'll have you go first. Can you uh, let us know what recently made you think or you think totally tanked? So I have been intrigued by the large number of women running for office on the U.S. side for the mid upcoming midterm elections. And I would love to see something like that happening on the European side too, because I deeply believe in that we need to have more diversity in Europe's leadership, um, that it truly reflects the diversity of Europe as a whole. Okay, that, uh, that sounds great, Greta. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us today. Jonathan. Uh, what, did, what did you bring in terms of a think or a tank? Well, I, earlier I mentioned the, the Yankees and the Red Sox, so, but I won't use that because the Yankees did tank, but 
tomorrow the Red Sox could tank too. So um, I'm, I'm wary of that. Uh, my tank uh, that I've thought about is relates directly to the conversation that we had today, which is this issue of, of democracy and democracy support. And the way I look at it is, and particularly from the U.S. side, is that the U.S. invests this incredible amount of resources, not necessarily in democracy and governance, but we spent a lot of money on defense and security, including our relationships. Some of these relationships have been 50 years in the making, um, and that the United States constantly puts resources into military and security. And, and the way I'm looking at this, when we when we think about Central Europe, uh, we pulled out the United States, USA did. Obviously, the U.S. embassies still exist uh, on the ground, and the State Department is there. But but the tank was uh, is is not uh, putting resources for the United States and for Europe longer term into projects abroad, and that means that the United States should never, it's in our interest, it's a national security interest of the United States for countries to be democratic, for them not to be corrupt. And somehow we we don't prioritize uh, democracy, support for civil society in the same way that we do for security. And so I think we're tanking over the long term because we don't value enough the importance of democracy, um, of other countries' stability politically, and that over the longer term, we it's not in the U.S. interest um, and it's not in the interest of those countries in Europe that want to see Europe move in a certain direction for us not to invest in these type of projects. And I mean, projects for whether we support uh, gender inclusion, whether we are looking at human rights, whether we're looking um, at minority communities, but democracy needs to be uh, it needs to be uh, supported um, over a long term. It needs to be groomed. And I somebody the other day told me that uh, Vice President Biden said democracy is 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 like grass. Every now and then it has to be mowed, and because it grows, and then it's and then we have these challenges, and you mow it, and then it sort of comes back again, and you have this struggle, this inherent struggle. Um, politically, internally in countries, but there's no better system. And what we know is that for the United States and others, when countries are democracies, they're better partners in terms of security, economically, um, and people's lives are better. And there's no other system out there that can do what democracy does. And so that's my tank, is is this lack of real long-term focus and understanding. And when we don't do that, as a country in the United States or in Europe, uh, then we lose. Then other power vacuums pour in, and then eventually we come back in again and say, we've got to address this problem and put resources back in. But if we just stay with it consistently, we'll have a much better shot at, at seeing the type of world we'd like to, to live in. I'm going to um, abuse my host privileges and, and um, name two things, partly because there's one article that's really relevant that I wasn't going to um, talk about, but it just seems so relevant and didn't come up in the conversation. And um, I read it when it came out a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was really excellent. Um, or maybe it was only a week ago. And this is Anne Applebaum's um, essay in the in a recent um, Atlantic collection on that asked the question, is democracy dying? The whole collection is quite good. Um, but in terms of thinking about Poland and Central Europe, and and that whole debate. Um, it's called A Warning from Europe, The Worst is Yet to Come. And it's ex- it's a pretty bleak outlook, really, because she basically comes to the conclusion that the struggle for who has power and who governs um, is bound to come back. And so what we're seeing is is a sort of natural process, and we were wrong to think it ended. But it's, it's more than that. It's just a really nice, um, thoughtful essay that's part memoir and part analysis, and I, I recommend it to anyone who's interested in what we talked about today. Um, so that's my extra snuck in one. The one I, the one I uh, actually brought with me to talk about, um, it's not unrelated. Uh, it's a book, um, I think it came out a couple of years ago, but I finally started reading it. Um, it's called The Age of Anger, A History of the Present by Pankaj Mishra. Um, and 
it's it's just really good. And he kind of talks about this, um, you know, all the sort of anger, um, fighting against democracy, um, trends of illiberalism across the world, um, and with a similar argument of that, you know, probably we were a little short-sighted in 1989 to think that everything was easy and settled. Um, but he kind of takes a much more global look and a deeper historical look at um, the sources for the discontent. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so that's my two, sorry, thanks. Um, and yeah, thank you, uh, Jonathan. Thank you, Corinna, for um, joining me. And uh, um, let's, yeah, hope for the best when it comes to the European order as we approach the 30-year anniversary. So Corinna had to jump off because it's evening. It's like dinner time now in Brussels. Um, but Jonathan, he's going to stick with me for a second because this is sort of a two-part segment, um, this Out of Order episode, because we have some guests in D.C. Um, that you're going to talk to that we thought would be pretty relevant um, for this segment. We wanted to get their voices in. Uh, so I'm going to hand over the hosting duties to you. Who, you know, who, who are we going to talk to? Who are we going to hear now? Well, we've got some really important uh, guests here today uh, from Central Europe. Um, we have uh, Robert Vosch, who is the president of Klobsec, which is one of the leading think tanks based in Bratislava. Uh, this think tank uh, that Robert leads uh, focuses not only on sort of democracy and governance issues in Central Europe, but they're also focusing on Russian interference, uh, the rise of authoritarianism in the region, uh, but also the transatlantic relationship, uh, particularly the United States relationship with Central European countries. Uh, so Robert has launched had launched this uh, think tank several years ago, uh, and it's playing a critical role in, in the transatlantic relations. Uh, with him are two other senior officials from Globesec. We have uh, Ambassador Radoslav Kacir, who was the former Slovak ambassador to the United States. He was also most recently the Slovak ambassador to Hungary. So he brings this tremendous insight into uh, what's happening in Hungary. Um, and he's going to be offering not only his insights and thoughts on these issues, but also some uh, solutions and ways for the U.S. and for the EU and others to address this rise of illiberal democracy in the region. We also have Ambassador Jakub Winuski who is the former Polish ambassador to the OSCE. Um, and uh, he brings with, uh, with him tremendous experience, not only at the OSCE, but in also in the Polish government as well, where he played uh, a senior role uh, within their Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's also going to talk about the challenges, particularly in Poland, um, but also in the Visegrad four countries, and also along with Ambassador Kaczor, talk about uh, ways for the United States to engage uh, what has become a really challenging issue that we already talked about today, which is rise of authoritarianism uh, and illiberal democracy uh, in Central Europe. But why don't we start? Well, uh, I, first of all, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting us. Central Europe has become a, a bigger uh, issue here in Washington, both in terms of the strategic perspective of security uh, there's also the issue of disinformation, Russia, but also uh, an issue that has uh, grown in focus here in Washington recently, which is backsliding of democracy in the region. Uh, not all of the countries, none of the, not all the Visegrad four countries are the same, but they're all experiencing different challenges, um, particularly to uh, democracy and their role within the transatlantic community, whether it's the EU or NATO. And I think just last week and this past week, we've had President Duda uh, was here from Poland in Washington, D.C. Uh, we had Viktor Orban was in the Kremlin, uh, you know, signing new deals, energy deals with uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, EU lawmakers recently initiated Article 7 punishment measures against Budapest. Um, and we had President Duda call EU an imaginary community. I think once uh, we all thought that this region was really the strength of EU and democracy and new democracy in Europe, um, I think that notion is being challenged. And here in Washington, we're trying to uh, think about how we address these challenges. So I'm really pleased that you're here today um, because Globesec, which you are all working for and have led and are leading, is at the center 
of addressing these challenges on the ground. So thank you for being here today. And I wanted to ask you, Ambassador Kacher, just off the front, how, you know, how is Globesec addressing and tracking the dual challenges of, of a liberal democracy, growing authoritarianism, and Russian aggression uh, in Central Europe? How are you tackling this head on? First of all, I should point at Globsec since the beginning, it's a value-based project. So we are the community of people who care about values. And um, I tend to say always on almost everything that, that the best decision-making or the main line you can take in your private life, but also in the policy when it relates to government uh, or anything, the best combination is a combination of love and reason. So when you follow uh, the interest and you combine that with values, and when uh, this is, was a special year, uh, 100 years of Czechoslovakia, and it reminds, reminds us that uh, U.S. supported uh, project of helping to create Czechoslovakia was the value-based project because this was built on Wilsonian principles. It was aimed at creating a, a true liberal democratic society in, in the center of Europe. But this was all, this served also very well the U.S. interest. So this was the best combination of reason, you know, uh, love and reason combined together. And it produced very stable and prosperous society for more than 20 years as a single, uh, single uh, country in the region. So we want to look at this heritage. And to us, um, our values are fundamental. And of course, uh, we are concerned. We want to create a network of um, um, people who think alike uh, um, and, uh, and offer a platform for debate, not only on the values, but also where the future is leading us. And when you point it on, on some Infowar, we try to look at the challenges uh, what our society is facing. Um, and this is not only a stability of democracy, but uh, how, how these get eroded. What are the techniques which are used in these days? And Infowar hybrid threats uh, to Central Europe, this is one of the core things uh, we are looking into. And we built, um, I think, one of the top reputation. We look, we do research, what is the impact? We do the research, how it's done. And uh, we try to think also how to prevent or how to, how to, uh, how to counteract, uh, to, to limit, to avoid. Can I ask you just a question, and this could go to all three of you too. I mean, do you agree with my assessment about the backsliding of democracy in the region? And and what what's what's a bigger? And I think this is important, particularly in Washington. What is the what is the what's the, what are the causes behind it? Uh, I think there are some that feel as though that that this is all Russian-inspired efforts, um, and then there are those who think, you know, what it's actually internal. It's the internal dynamics within each one of these countries. Um, that is shaping the uh, the politics, shaping the economy, uh, shaping some of these challenges that we're talking about. But do you agree with that assessment? We do. You know, I, I, quickly because I spoke I've spoken already. I do, but it's more general. This is nothing which would be very specific, Central European, except maybe for Hungary and to a certain degree to Poland. Uh, but uh, something is going on in the in, in the Western uh, democratic world. Uh, it's not only about us. In Russian, they only feed on the opportunity which is there. Uh, it's like you got weaker uh, and they step in and they are very efficient in using our own mistakes and our own vulner, 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 vulnerabilities. Sorry, it's a horrible world. I apologize. So here it's not Russian driven. Russians only feed. They only use it. They only see the gap which is there and they and, and they put the wedge in the gap and they and, and they work that wedge. But uh, we are concerned. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about the uh, backslide uh, in in Hungary. I think it went uh, the, the the most uh, um, the, the 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 way they walked into. Uh, um, yeah, the most advanced in this slide. Uh, Poland is a little bit different case, but I, in general, uh, I agree with you. But this is part of a broader package. You know, see the growth of AFD in Germany. See the, see the you know, creation of kind of a global coalition of uh, nationalistic uh, populist uh, parties and politicians. See the growth of people like Salvini, uh, Strache, you know, even those who tend to be more normal, conservative, mainstream, under the, those pressures are turning into more extreme conservative values, et cetera, et cetera. So we see, you know, look at the United States, what's going on here. You, you see a trench fights uh, and, and divisions like I've never seen in the United States. So what's going on in Central Europe is unfortunately part of a more global trend. 
Ambassador Winooski, would you agree, I mean, the assessment in terms of Poland and where Poland is today, and and you see statements like the imaginary uh, community, EU is an imaginary community. I think for a lot of us uh, who supported Poland's EU uh, transition and integration in the 2000s, I include myself as one of them when I was working in Congress, uh, can't imagine that this would necessarily come out of a, out of a Polish leader's mouth. Where are we today in, in terms of Poland's democracy and its interrelationship and leadership within uh, Europe? Strangely, that these words about imaginary community were, uh, were spoken uh, by President Duda in Poland when he was standing in front of a building which was totally revamped by Europe, through European money coming from the European Union regional policy funds. So uh, I was, as many citizens, uh, taken aback, and uh, I strongly disagree with this imaginary community expression. Uh, No, I'm Polish, but I'm also European, and this uh, feeling is shared by many uh, my compatriots. But uh, I think we touched touched a raw nerve here by discussing the crisis of liberal democracy. I cannot agree more with Rastislav. Uh, there is something general going on. Imagine a kindergarten when you, where you have uh, children hanging out, some of them bigger, some of them smaller, and uh, suddenly there comes a bacteria or virus, and uh, these kids are running high temperature, some of them cough all the time. And there is, there is this group of kids, uh, we can call them Visegrad 4, who... Uh, have only recently uh, got over a very strange flu, which was so the common experiencing so in they Italy, are still very weak. Uh, America, uh, Britain. Uh, unfortunately, in Visegrad four countries, it is felt uh, even more, uh, more, uh, and the, the, the crisis is much bigger. And it goes down to the subject or question of uh, how uh, viable the institutions are, how the societies and politician, politicians and establishment are comfortable with these institutions. They've been only around uh, for 25 years. So uh, it's not taken for granted. So what I believe is simply our situation is more complicated because we suffer from other diseases that are there for us, like aftershock of westernization. The westernization came very quickly, and it's easier to change your laws, to change your administrative standards, and it's much more difficult to make mindsets adapt. So we have today a counter-revolution in Poland. Uh, young uh, um, people might, might be more uh, Euro-enthusiastic, but uh, elderly generation living in some rural communities, they take it hard to accept that the European Union is a choice, natural choice for everyone else. So there is this conservative, uh, very uh, religious uh, part of the society, which simply does not understand the economic and political aspects of the new of the new order. Hence, this um, difficulty to find a common um, vision for, for the country. And after the pro-European governments uh, of the past years, there came uh, some, some sort of uh, um, different, uh, uh, different optics and different philosophy, which is now represented by this very conservative argument. But this is just like the previous governments were not fully representative of the country, the same is today. Uh, whatever you hear from uh, President Duta, he only speaks for part of the society. And this pro-European core is still there. Our public opinion polls show it very clearly. Mr. Vash. Yeah, I agree that this is a part of a more general trend that is going on uh, in the West. Uh, um, uh, I, I think it's uh, it's connected also to the information revolution and how uh, people are uh, do, doing their political choices based on information that they are not getting from the traditional media, but increasingly from social media and internet. And there you have a very difficult uh, environment where it is very difficult to distinguish between uh, uh, a correct and a false information, between uh, propaganda and disinformation, uh, between fake news. It's very, very easy to manipulate uh, people and to market target people. This is changing the nature of uh, the political fight. This is changing the nature of, of uh, uh, the leadership because... Uh, the leaders that we were used to have in 90s or, or uh, just decades ago are no longer there because uh, with the political visions 
you're not anymore uh, able to win elections. Uh, you need to have the money, you, you need to be able to buy enough uh, data, you need to be able to micro-target uh, small communities. And this is completely changing the way how people are making their political choices. So it's first, but... Cut in on that just for a second, too, because I think you're, you're right about the, or at least what many people perceive is this change in technology, which has impacted uh, elections here as well. Um, and the and the something that struck me when we were in sort of in this conversation already is that there seems to be this chain of of whether it's in Italy or Austria, um, Le Pen, you know, or even uh, you know, pro, not all pro Brexit. I'm not going to put everybody in that same camp, but certainly there were some um, on on that side too. Uh, you know, you pointed to parties in Germany, uh, Hungary, Poland. Um, there's this list, this chain. Yeah, of Steve Bannon setting up and helping this network. Well, good. You, you you brought up the name that I was going to bring up too, because it seems that there's this this force, and I don't want to always give it too much credit or understand how interconnected it is, that is really pushing hard on this on on uh, on sort of liberal. I, I wouldn't even call it liberal democracy because it's no longer. I don't believe that. Hungary is a liberal, illiberal democracy. I think it's too, you're giving too much credit to uh, to uh, Viktor Orban right now. But what what's the opposite force in Europe right now that is pushing back in terms of both values because you raised values earlier, um, democracy, human rights. Is the, is there a, a cohesive, coordinated counter effort? To, to address these challenges, and can you do it without the leadership of the United States? If I may just very quickly, there will be European elections in uh, uh, next year, March, and uh, many people are looking at these elections as, as really a test, whether the traditional parties can keep uh, their majorities in the European Parliament. And uh, it's, it's now clear that they will be challenged by, uh, by, by a big trends that more nationalistic parties will will and anti-European parties will grow. What happened in France was a kind of uh, uh, very different when Emmanuel Macron won, because he won with a pro-European agenda in the middle of the trends in Europe that were growing anti-European uh, political parties. That was something which uh, which really showed that you can win with the pro-European agenda uh, major elections in in Europe, but. Uh, was that just France? Uh, is it a, uh, can can we make it a trend? There is a big question uh, in the run up to the European elections uh, next year. So the, I guess the question too of the United States, and and I, I understand you mentioned Macron, but he um, he has his own challenges now domestically. I think which we should have all figured that would happen, which is challenging for any French leader, and also in Germany you see. Uh, domestic challenges for Merkel as well, and a UK that is focused on Brexit and its own internal challenges. And so you have this this combination. I wanted to go back to the United States because one, I don't, you know, tell me what you see in terms of this unified community within Europe that's that is the the opposite of the Steve Bannon, Le Pen's, um, Victor Orban's. I'm not sure if I would exactly put all those three in the same basket, but what is that countervailing force? And I go back to it because you're here in Washington for a reason. Um, and uh, we, what what is the message that you're delivering on what role you want to see the United States play to address these challenges? Well, as the, the doctors say, when they start practicing their profession, they have to stick to the rule, first do no harm. So uh, this is something that I would expect from from America. There are plenty of issues where uh, Europe and uh, and America are not standing together anymore, uh, starting from uh, such um, uh, things like perception and policies about uh, Israel and uh, Palestinian authority, um, go, moving on to the uh, greening agenda and climate change agenda, but uh, also policy on Iran, security policy. And maybe first and foremost, this is about tariffs, uh, multilateralism, world trade, trade organization, etc. So uh, if uh, America does not uh, 
um, often hear or listen to its allies and treats everybody else as adversaries. This is a beginning of an end of the transatlantic community. So first of all, I would mend all these things all these things that uh, do not uh, function very well. Uh, we have to go back and revisit our common agenda and make sure that we can work together because there are these less well-behaved kids on the block, like China, like Russia, who constantly challenge uh, our leadership, our presence in the multilateral order. So this is a very banal thing. I think uh, in, in the last uh, decades, uh, the American uh, uh, um, uh, leadership was, was trying to make uh, Europe whole and free and strong. It's been always tr- supporting strong Europe and a strong European Union because uh, they wanted to have uh, uh, an, an, uh, a strong uh, sparring partner on the European side. Now we have to make sure that whatever United States uh, does in Europe in terms of re-engagement goes in coordination with the European Union. And whatever the U.S. will do in Europe with the re-engagement will not weaken the European Union. This is absolutely crucial. I think this is more important to say, not a coordination, but not to weaken it. You don't have to coordinate, but you have to be sensitive what you do. So when when the EU and and Brussels threatens Article 7, whether it's the parliament, um, whether, you know, it's Poland or Hungary, How should the United States react? Because this backdrop this week of President Duda's visit was also at the same time very deep concerns in Brussels about uh, movement forward on judicial uh, – these judicial reforms and putting in place new judges, Supreme Court judges against the will of the EU. Should the U.S. be out front supporting – Uh, Brussels, or should it say nothing? Because America is a bigger kid who is not part of this kindergarten that I was talking about. So this kindergarten has certain rules, among them Article 7, and let the kids uh, um, settle it among themselves. Uh, I would not expect America to uh, to intervene directly by uh, by kind of showing its own interpretation of uh, Article 7. Uh, of course, America is um, basing its relationship with democracies on um, um, not only human rights, but also democratic uh, standards. And uh, the country has a, a right to interpret these, uh, these rights. But this is um, a rather um, more... Uh, the problem for the European family. Uh, I believe that the European Union has developed a modus operandi about Article 7. It's not only about Council, it's not only about European Parliament, but also European Court of Justice. So uh, there is a judicial aspect to this process which is going on. Uh, What I would expect America to do is, as I said before, do no harm by kind of... uh, trying to expose the situation or use the situation to rule and divide. Mm. So I would be grateful if, uh, uh, say, head of American state would not uh, travel to one of these countries that are undergoing the procedure of Article 7 just by praising uh, their uh, kind of sovereign decisions, etc. Because this is uh, choosing the site in this uh, conflict. And and does that include, you know, should it be connected in any way to basing issues in Poland. I mean, shouldn't there be, or do you think there should be a demand that, you know, if Poland backslides on democracy, as many indicators show, and the EU Brussels has clearly signaled its concerns about this, and those within Poland, civil society and others are expressing these concerns as well, should the United States factor in these issues when it thinks about security issues, my question then would go to, for all three of you, what will NATO look like 10 years from now if you have, if if this authoritarian trend and a liberal trend continues, is that the type of alliance that makes all of us feel secure about our ability to address the challenges? I, I agree with you, the challenges of, of Russia, of course, in terms of security could also be terrorism which is particularly important, obviously, for Europe and the United States, or China, as China's uh, power expands. Can I finish what I was saying by adding that 
it's important that America has some kind of third party to fall back upon, that it's not kind of unilateral policy. We don't want America to be a hegemon of this type that they decide what is kosher, what is not, what is acceptable, what is not. So Europe over decades has developed certain processes or or, or uh, procedures. There is uh, OECE, a very good organization. There, is, uh, there are uh, courts uh, in Europe that can handle this, uh, this subject uh, rather fairly and uh, objectively. And uh, it's not that uh, easily uh, connected the subject of military bases in countries like Poland and standards of democracy. Turkey is uh, very low on some of the measurements of democracy, but still it's an important uh, ally. So I, I would not go as far as to very quickly uh, um, go, uh, go back or go lower on some of the activities that are happening under uh, the auspices of NATO, etc. Uh, on NATO, there is Article 5. And, uh, and there is a clear commitment of the United States to do uh, its utmost to, to pr- protect the security of its allies. So I, I believe that we should not go as far as to kind of make this security dependent on some uh, arbitrary interpretation of uh, whether a given country is uh, 90% a democracy or 95% of democracy. And, and just in terms of Hungary too, uh, you obviously, you were ambassador uh, and uh, you've seen the challenges there. We've talked a lot about Poland, but also your, your thoughts on the approach uh, to Hungary and, and you know whether or not some of these same rules should apply, whether or not the United States, we didn't mention support for, for civil society in Central Europe. And the United States used to be uh, one of the more significant funders and supporters of civil society, independent media uh, in, in Central Europe. It no longer is there... Uh, providing that support. Is it a good idea in the case of countries like Hungary and Poland and um, and other countries in the region for the U.S. to re-engage and provide that support? Mm. You know, um, on in this informally created, and maybe it's, it will get formalized in some way, this nationalistic network or the parties uh, who are um, nationalistic, egoistic parties, uh, in that network, Viktor Orban has got aspiration to be the leader of that. And he claimed that openly, uh, even after this vote in uh, Strasbourg recently. I think he's got an ambition to lead after next European uh, parliamentary elections, uh, kind of a crowd, which is going to go the way me first, and I don't care about the rest. And in trying to think that the global challenges you can tackle by uh, closing a uh, fence around your own country. Unfortunately, this will, and when you look at this coalition as it's created and, you know, in the support uh, by Mr. Bannon uh, out there, uh, this is very inconsistent and incoherent coalition, and it will bring their own internal tensions. And you see grown nationalism in Austria, uh, also in Italy. But I wonder how this is going to work, how Mr. Salvini is going to be happy uh, with some of the Austrian parties, when Austria will start to issue double passports uh, and feed the nationalism in northern Italy. Uh, so, and it's the same applies to Viktor Orban, who is claiming, uh, you know, that he wants to reintegrate Carpathian Basin. You know, how how, how countries like Romania, Slovakia and, and Ukraine are going to react. And in, in particular, when you see this fueled by uh, Mr. Putin, uh, who used the same tactic to destabilize Ukraine, uh, to capture uh, Russian minority uh, in eastern Ukraine and use it as a tool. So this nationalistic league uh, or the party of national egoism will clash from within at some point because they have contra- contradictory goals. Uh, but if you ask about the what is the counterforce and what is the resilience in, in, in the region, this is I would use the medical example with Jakub use. Sometimes you can do nothing. Sometimes you just wait. Uh, and if you got a flu, sometimes, you know, doctors used to say, that with medication, it's passing in seven days. Without the medication, it's just in a week. Uh, and there is some cycles in politics where uh, uh, reason gets uh, down and, and, and emotion prevails. And we are in this pin at the moment. Uh, we need to be ready for the moment when the pendulum uh, will swing. There is no coordinated counterforce. Today, uh, there is truth. 
Russians are smartly using the weakness and vulnerability in not in, not only in Central Europe. Look at Brexit. Look at the referendum in in, in Netherlands on on Ukraine. Look at the elections here in this country, etc. We you know get ready for for what's going to happen in in string of elections in Europe. So. I think I, I have some trust uh, that there is some immunity, innate immunity uh, in our region and the pendulum will swing. With Hungarian case, I'm slightly skeptical because I think it's to today it's a regime. It's a highly controlled, sophisticated regime. As we used to have watch, now we have smart watch. We used to have autocracies, autocracies which were clear autocracies. Now we have smart autocracies who use the instruments of democracy to pretend, to fake, and sometimes it's very hard. And I want to come to that point where you say what to do. Uh, we need to be sharp and precise in argumentation where countries like that are failing. So criticism needs to be very precise and very accurate. So if you want to accuse Viktor Orban on, on misconduct on things, it should not be ideological. You should not uh, mess up things in there, which he will abuse and play back to your face and say, this is a liberal conspiracy and you hate me because you're leftist. You need to criticize for the right things, for the authoritarian things which he's doing and not to mix things. Because if you put in the bag rice fruits, then you say, ah, that's biased. And it's easy to, to discredit. So in the role of United States, this is crucial. Next year, it's a special year. Next year, it's a 30 years anniversary of the string of revolutions which ended up communism. And Berlin Wall fell down. Uh, sitting in this organization, you know, where else to remind that? Uh, but also for Czechos, Czechs and Slovaks, Velvet Revolution for, for Hungarians as well. The role of United States was irreplaceable because United States started uh, with Reagan, uh, but going Clinton, uh, we should remind ourselves what was the role of the United States. And it was extremely positive. It was value-based, but this was also, in a sense, politically transactional because it, it served the purpose. It, it enlarged the st stable community, which is cooperating together. And it's forgotten now here. You know, kind of a slogan, America first, or Hungary to Hungarians. You know, we should forget about that because... This was that together we are stronger. And next year, this is a, and, and we've been reminding everybody who we are meeting here, what was the role of the United States? And even in European integration, if that was not a push from administration, there was a lot of those skeptics in Germany and France and Britain, you know, whether we, we should enlarge, how fast we, we, we would enlarge, et cetera, et cetera. So next year is an excellent year to remind constructive role. Well, I think that's a perfect uh, ending point. Thank you so much for being here and taking time to, to join us. And I know this is going to be a continued conversation. And uh, we look forward to uh, working with and engaging with GlobeSec and all of you both in Washington, but also in, in Europe as well. Thank, Thank you, Jonathan. Thank, Thank you, you, GMF. Thanks for listening to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. Out of Order is produced by Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant. New episodes will be available every other Thursday. Subscribe and download on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts.